And good morning, Calvary. Good morning to our online listeners as well. We have several staff away at a Silence and Solitude retreat this week, but we're glad that you are here today. As we are starting to wrap up the summer, I wanted you to know um, that every week is going to feel a little different. Next week's going to feel a little different. We encourage you to bring your Bibles and a pen. Woo! And if you got your middle schooler, bring them. They're going to want to come to that because it's going to be great. We're going to talk about how to study God's Word and give some practical application. You will not want to be on Calvary time. You'll actually want to be on time, okay? So that's for next week. Some of you will get that much later. As we're going through this, also a two weeks from today is Party at the Park, which is our great event that we do. And we've done it for years, and we'll have about 2,000 people show up at the amphitheater probably. Uh, the roads are a little more difficult to get there, but you can get there. And let me just give a real quick shout-out. We've had a lot of people who have faithfully served doing Party at the Park for literally 20 years speaking specifically to the younger people in the crowd time to step up they're they're ready to pass on some batons so if you can help us i know it's hard with kids but you can alternate with the kids and help out we need you to sign up for that because it's a great chance for us to host and show our city that we love them a lot of food a lot of fun there's horses and a lot of fun things like that. So we want you to come. We want you to get excited. But there's no service two weeks from today. It's Saturday night at 6.30. So that's kind of where we're going with that. And as we're doing kind of these uh, hodgepodge sermons, this week is not a part of a series, but it's one of those passages that I think is so important. As today we're going to talk about the very first sermon that Jesus ever preached. Now, if it's the first sermon Jesus ever preached, it's probably pretty important. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to get there in a moment. Um, and if you don't, the words will be on the screen here in a little bit. But let me just kind of catch us up to what's going on. Jesus is teaching not only the disciples, but there's other people who are there. In the religious culture of the day, you may have heard me say this before, there were four groups of people who would have also been there. Some of those were the leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Let me break that down for you real quick. You see, the Pharisees were fair, you see. Because they tried to follow God, but they were very legalistic. Does that happen at all in the world today? The Sadducees were sad, you see, because they didn't really see the eternal aspects of Jesus, and Jesus was just kind of a commodity to use to make the day better. Those kind of exist in the world today too, right? And then after the Sadducees, you have the Essenes. And the Essenes were people who would have probably only eaten at places that had the little fish symbol and only worked out at the Christian gym. You know, and if they saw a person cussing, would have run the other way. That's the Essenes, and that doesn't exist in the world today at all, does it? And then there's the my favorite group, the Zealots, who believed they could change the culture through electing the proper officials. Anybody. <laughs> These still exist, and those are groups of people. And what Jesus does is he's about to challenge all of those groups. And their philosophies in matthew chapter 5 verse 1 and 2 it says when jesus saw the crowds he went up on the mountain and after he sat down the crowds indicates all those groups were there not only the disciples he sat down with the disciples came to him and then he began to teach them saying he began to teach them is important but even more important is the idea of he sat down you see he sat down was the equivalent of me standing on a stage on sunday morning or, or somebody standing behind a pulpit. Did y'all like Pastor Charles last week? He wanted a pulpit because he wanted to hold on to the pulpit. I love that. And so, but it's the idea of I am on Sunday mornings trying to speak the word of God. 
And so if you run into me at Aldi, first of all, that would be a miracle, okay? But if you run into me at Aldi and ask me a question, I, I will do my best. But when I stand up here to, on Sunday mornings, I'm trying to do what they call kerygma, the spoken word of God. In other words, and this scares me to even say this, I'm trying not to say Daniel Barry's words. I'm trying to say the very words of God, which is why you need to pray for the pastors, because <laughs> that's a burden and it literally scares me that I just said that out loud, but that's what I'm called to do. And so when I'm preaching the Word of God, I'm trying to, to allow us to interact with what God says. And so when he sat down, he was saying, boys and girls, time to take notes. This is not a casual conversation. And as he does so, um, he introduces what we call the Beatitudes. Now, as I was practicing this the other day, Chris wanted me to tell you the Beatitudes should be our attitude. <laughs> Very good. Okay, so the Beatitudes are this idea of what will bring us joy. And so there's four things you need to know about the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes were a promise from God. Isn't it nice to know that God promises us stuff? That he says, if you want joy, which is what we're going to get to, if you want happiness, if you want to find the purpose in life, let this be your attitude. It's a way to live. It's not just something that we do on Sunday mornings. It's, it's the way we are to live our life. And the Beatitudes are always shared. In other words, they're not just to be consumed, but there's something that God is going to do through these instructions that will change the way that we live in the world around us. And ultimately, it is a path to receive joy because the Beatitudes are about us receiving blessed are, happy are, joyful are. Now, here's the cool part. If I said, who wants joy? I might even get some amens, even in this crowd. Last week, I got lots of amens. Let's see if we can be a little more interactive, okay? And at, at, who wants joy? We're all like, woo, I want joy, I want joy. And now we're going to challenge the way that you think and the way that you go about to find that joy because he's about to say the following words. Matthew 5, 3. The poor in spirit are blessed. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You want to find the kingdom of God? You want to find God's truth? You want to find the king of kings? You have to have the poor in spirit. That's how you find joy. You are poor in spirit. Now, sometimes people look at this and they go, oh, the poor are blessed. Well, that's later, but that's not actually what he says here. He's not talking about financially poor. What he's actually talking about here is an emptying of yourself. You are uh, dependent on God. You are dependent on your life. It is, I recognize I have no self-sustaining ability in my soul. To look at that even further, I want us to look at Luke 21, verses 1 through 4. He looked up. This is another one of my favorite passages. Jesus looked up and saw the rich dropping their offerings into the temple treasury. And he also saw a poor widow dropping in two tiny coins. I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For all these people have put in their gifts out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty has put in all she had to live on. You see, we struggle to understand this because we don't really understand the concept of poor in our country. And the way that I could best describe that is when you actually look at what the word poor is, as it's described in Luke 21, 1 through 4, there's actually two different words that we both in English translate poor. Okay? And the very first word poor is actually translated relative poverty. Now, relative poverty, we understand. 
My relative is poor. No, that's not what it's saying, okay? Relative poverty is, by definition, the state of having a standard of living expenses that cannot be met with a household income. Anybody feel poor, right? I, we can't make our bills meet. How many subscriptions do we have? Netflix, Disney+, Plus, ESPN+, Plus, Hulu. We've got to have them all, but we can't make them. We're poor, right? Or, or I want to do what I want to do, and I can't do it, so I feel poor. Why? Because the Joneses, no offense to the Joneses, the Joneses down the road can do it. Why can't I do that? I am poor. As we look up on our iPhone how poor we are. You see, relative poverty is a poverty that's based in comparison. And so when Jesus is asking us to be poor in spirit, he's not asking us to be relative poor. He's not asking us to compare, oh goodness, the pastor is so wealthy in his spiritual knowledge, I am poor. That's not what he's saying. He's not asking you to compare your holiness to the guy or the girl down the road. And aren't we glad? Because that's a, a dog chasing the tail. You're never going to catch it. If you do, you won't know what to do with it, right? So the idea of relative poverty is actually not what he's talking about. But interestingly enough, Jesus says this poor widow went from relative poverty to when she put in her two coins to a different place. And he says, this is what you should be. And so he looks around and goes, I, all of you who give your 10%, thank you. You're keeping the lights on. You're doing all those things, but you're not giving what that widow is giving. All of you who write that big check, thank you. But the widow who gives her last, that's, that's what's honoring to God. Why? Because she transitions. The word there actually shifts from this relatively poor widow to this absolutely poor widow. The other Greek word means absolute poverty. So what's the definition of absolute poverty? The state of not being able to meet minimum survival needs. Why did she go from relative poor to absolute poor? Because she had two coins. When you have two coins, guess what you can do? Invest them. You you have two coins, you can at least go to McDonald's and get the dollar meal. Yes, I know that didn't exist back then, okay? But go with me. Two coins would have been enough for a couple of meals, enough to survive for a few more days. She knew where her next steps were. She was able to be, wait for it, dependent on herself for at least another little season. But when she placed those two coins in, she went from being able to sustain herself to not being able to sustain herself at all. So when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, it's saying, you recognize that you cannot sustain yourselves apart from the presence of God. That's really difficult. To say, God, whatever is your will is my will. Whatever is your way, I want to do. And let me explain it to you why we struggle with that in another way that we approach this and another struggle that we have. Say, I, I listed four types of people, four groups of people, but I now want to talk to you about two pervasive philosophies and then come back to a third philosophy is that we should live. The philosophies, by definition, are the way that we view the world. The glasses that we put on that help us, the lens through which we see the world. Fair enough? 
throughout history, the two philosophies that I'm about to cover, society has ebbed and flowed back and forth, okay? And the very first one is the Stoic philosophy. And in this culture, we've been in a Stoic philosophy for quite a while. The Stoic philosophers say, I think, therefore I am. Science is king. Now hear me, I'm not against science. I love science. But it's, if I can rationalize it, if I can find the equation, if I can find the, I know that I know that I know, right? And so that has been the pervasive culture of our society, and churches are full of people who are stoics in their mindset. I need to know what I know what I know about God. Now, here's what's interesting. Our society currently is in a shift, and some people are panicked about it. But let me just tell you, society has gone back and forth between these two philosophies since the beginning of time. They were doing it in Jesus' time. So our society is currently shifting from I think, therefore I am, into a Epicurean philosophy, which says, I feel, therefore I am. If I feel like it's right, it's right. That's truth. If I feel like this is what I should believe, if I feel like this is who God is, then, then that's who he is. And, and so we go back and forth. We go back from the Stoic to the Epicurean, the Epicureans to the Stoics. And we've created churches that are Stoics. It's like, we don't feel around here, we just study the Word of God. But there's actually God-made emotions, and we need to have emotions, okay? And then we have the other group of people who are like very Epicurean. Oh, we, it's okay, everything. And so you have these two segments and the battles, and what happens is, if the church isn't meeting our philosophy, we go find a church that does. Anybody see the danger there? those philosophies, even though I love emotion, even though I love knowledge, will lead to our own demise. And when we put our hope in what we can ascertain, what we can understand, and what we can believe, and we don't look to God, we will So rather than being, I think, therefore I am, or I feel, therefore I am, we need to have a biblical worldview. We need to put on the glasses and see the world through God's eyes, which says, I am who God says I am, which is found in his word, his truth. And so when Jesus says, this is absolute poverty, he says, this is the emptying of yourself. Can I ask for 10 minutes? 10 minutes of without judging me. <laughs> 10 minutes where I can ruffle your feathers just a little bit, not for the sake of ruffling them, but because I believe God wants to say something. Can I have 10 minutes before you get angry in your spirit? Pastor in Nashville says, here's the problem with the church in today. Here's how most of the church views pastors and preachers. He says this is the problem. A preacher's presumed task is to assume people's virtue, not to confront people's sin. It often seems to me that for some, the greatest sin a preacher can commit is not to diminish scripture, but to distort people's comfort and self-esteem. 
greatest sin I can do is challenge what you already believe. You see, we live in a world that the church is full of Epicurean and Stoic philosophies, and what happens is when our philosophy isn't met, we just go down to the church down the road. We don't really pause to ask God, what do you want me to believe? We don't really know what it believes because we don't really ask and we don't really care what God says. We want God to fit in the box that we want him to fit in. What if that's not the calling? What if the same message that Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, still applies to us today where we have to say, God is going to challenge the way that you view the world. Do you trust him? yourself so how does this work out stay with me so when I says when I says when I say that God instructs marriages between a man and a woman some of you are like yes and some of you are like no and it's based on your ideologies, not actually what God says. You know how I know that? Because the same people are going, yes, when I say the following, God instructs us not to lust, take divorce seriously, care for the earth, obsess over wealth, and not to judge. We don't like that. And when in Matthew 7, the Bible tells us not to judge, really what you need to understand is my job in here is not to gather a group of saints who feel good about themselves by condemning people who disagree with us. My job is to bring us into the place to realize that we are all broken. That we live in a glass house and I have no stones to throw. That, that this last week I struggled at times. That this last week I was not the father I needed to be. That this last week I was not always the husband that I needed to be. This last week I was not always the child of God that I needed to be. And I'm not here to judge anyone. I'm here to say that if you trust in God, you will do what he wants us to do. And you will seek his word and his presence. Because blessed, happy, joyful are the poor in spirit. Those who say, God. God, I will not justify my life anymore. I will not justify the way I think. God, show me where I'm wrong. Show me how I can be brought into your presence because theirs is the kingdom of God. Yours is, your presence is what I long for. This is what will change the church. Church, we're not about judging people, but we are about the truth. I have no stones to throw. I will love you regardless but I'm going to tell you the truth you know what I find happens a lot is also found throughout the Bible the Old Testament's really encouraging to a, a, a pastor because you find a lot of times in the Old Testament pastors preach and the people go nah Jeremiah chapter 45 is the perfect example of that. Jeremiah is preaching to the Old Testament church, the Israelites, and he says, hey, thus saith the Lord, I'm, I'm on Sunday morning and I'm preaching, and the people literally say, sometimes people go, oh, pastor, that's good, they need to hear that, okay? But this time, they're even more emboldened, they go, they literally say the following, yeah, that might be right, but we're not going to do it. Because God, what's God going to do to us? He's loving. No. I don't want to do what God says. 
dangerous place to be. Now, let me be crystal clear. If you think I'm talking to the right, or if you think I'm talking to the left, you've missed the point. Put down your stones and ask yourself, am I willing to see what God says is true? Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10 says the following, be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world, the philosophies of the world, rather than Christ. Why? For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells in bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by him who is the head and ruler of authority. Be careful that you aren't a Stoic or an Epicurean. Be careful. You are a son or a daughter of the King of Kings. Empty yourself so that you might be filled with his presence. Empty your ideas and say, God, I know that there's probably something that I need to change about the way I view the world. I'm too judgmental. I'm, I'm too angry. I'm too, I'm too whatever. God, make it about you. I've been reading a book um, called The Furious Longing of God by Brennan Manning. I love Brennan Manning. By the way, my oldest son is named Brennan. <laughs> the Furious Longing of God, and, and I want to I brace you. This is, this is a difficult story for a few, okay? But as Brennan was talking about the furious longing of God and the quest that we have, he one night was talking to a nun who came to him in tears. And here's what the nun said. She said, when I was a little girl, my father did everything imaginably horrible to me that you can ever imagine. And I have felt dirty ever since then. And I've spent my entire life trying to be more like Mother Teresa to earn the approval of God to feel good about myself. I know that that's wrong. But I don't know how to get better. And as a pastor, can I just tell you, I've heard that story far too often. But here's what Brennan challenged that nun. She said, he said to her, if you want to find the presence of God, you need to pray the following. Father, help me to see how I'm your daughter. Or Father, help me to see how I'm your son. You see, the danger that we face is we live in a culture that's trying to achieve the unachievable. We're trying to achieve the idea of a relative holiness and we feel good about ourselves based on the moment, based on comparing ourselves to the guy down the street. And so in doing so, we then pick up our stones or 
if we're an escape artist, we try to escape to the mountains to feel good about ourselves, or we have the fight and the flight, and we're all trying to find worth and value, and the worth and the value isn't in the religion that you can cite. The devil can do that. But rather, the hope that we find is placing ourselves in the heartbeat and the presence of a loving Father who carefully knit us together in our mother's womb. Are you willing to seek the presence of God? This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Stay here. I'm not bouncing from church to church anymore if they preach Jesus. Now here's the danger. Y'all may not realize this. I think you do. I'm still human. So even though I stand up on stage and say, Kerygma, I'm speaking, thus saith the Lord, you have to understand that I could be wrong. I pray I'm not. There's a strict judgment coming for that someday. And I... I, I but that's why you need to seek the word of God yourself. You need to have a little critical view. You need to understand what God's word says, but not for the sake of just knowing it. Because as you seek the presence of God, you will be drawn into his presence. And as we're drawn into his presence, his presence will make us whole. We don't need the world to be full of more zealots. We need people to have zeal for God's presence. And that's the journey. Lastly, I'm going to give you another wordplay because sometimes people remember things through wordplay. Sometimes people think they're cheesy. They can be both. Can I just say that the danger that we have in our culture today is because we justify our viewpoints rather than actually asking God what he says. And you know what happens when we justify? When we justify, we're really acting just if I was God. When we attempt to justify our worldview, we are acting just if I was God. So today, can we recognize we aren't? And can we say, God, what... What in my life do I need to challenge? And how do I love? And for just a moment, don't worry about everybody else. Don't, don't worry about how this is going to affect your relationships. Don't worry about, get alone in the presence of God. Because when you're in the presence of God, He works those things out. I have no stones to throw. Lastly, I recognize that sometimes following God costs some to sacrifice more than others. And I'm sorry. That may even seem fake to you. It's not meant to be. But I believe God loves you. And by trusting in His will and His way, you can find how good he is as a father. Guys, I love you.
I'm glad he said that because otherwise that's a big matzo ball I'll throw out there and I you know, relive my 17-year-old nightmares, okay? So here's our daily training. Trust his word. <laughs> Can you trust his word? How you trust his word is to know his word. How you trust his word is to know him. We need to have some hard conversations down the road, but know that I love you. If you're going to get mad, I can handle it. I won't like it, but I can handle it. But know that I'm speaking to you out of love. And I can stand before God and say that. So God, I pray that we trust you. That you would give us your wisdom, guidance, and hope. God, I don't understand everything. I don't pretend to. Spirit, would you move? Father, I know some in this room right now are so broken, it seems like you're nowhere to be found. God, make that our prayer. Father, help me to know I am a son or a daughter of you. Father, help me to know I am a son or a daughter of you. Father, help me to know that I am a son or a daughter of you. Erase everything else in this world, God. May it just be your presence. God, help me. Father, help me to know that I am a son or a daughter of you. Draw me into your presence. God, help me to know you're real. Help me to trust you with everything because you are loving like a father. You are careful. And God, I know earthly fathers often fail us, but you never will. So God, Father, help me to know that I am a son or a daughter of you. Draw me to you. May you be my everything. God, help me to empty myself. Maybe poor in spirit. Make me dependent. Make me, me self-reliant no more. Father, help me to know that I am a child of you. And then do amazing things. In your name we pray.